0: Hello, I'm Simon Long, the finance editor of The Economist. Welcome to Money Talks. Coming up on the programme, a tale of two chip makers, a mammoth hostile takeover bid.
1: Well, these companies might not be household names, Simon, but they are ubiquitous. Their chips feature in more or less every phone, um, computer or tablet, and that's why this is such a big deal.
0: And what's threatening old-fashioned customer service in Japan?
2: You hear people saying that at lunchtime their tray was taken away before they'd finished eating. Things that they say just wouldn't have happened a few years ago because they're, they're a shortage of stuff and people are in a rush and don't have time for the same level of service anymore.
0: First, 10 years ago now, a 40% quota for female directors of listed companies came into force in Norway. It was heralded as a breakthrough. And now most countries in Western Europe have followed suit. Forcing companies to reserve a certain share of seats on their boards for women. Non complying firms can, in theory, be forcibly dissolved. Slaveya Chankova, who's been looking into the effects of these quotas in Norway over the last ten years, joins me now. Hello, Slave.
3: Hello, Simon.
0: So, broadly, what are the effects?
3: So um, since Norway introduced the quota, as you said, uh, most countries in Western Europe introduced uh, similar quotas. In some countries, they come with strict penalties. Companies that fail to comply may be dissolved or uh, may have to pay a hefty fine. Or in France, the directors uh, may not be paid. Depending on how strict the penalties are, uh, companies uh, have complied to uh, various degrees. Um, The Overall result is that the share of women on corporate boards across Western Europe has really shot up uh, to 30-40% in many countries. Some of the effects that uh, were expected uh, by proponents of these quotas were um, better conditions for working women, um, more women in management positions, such as chief executive officers, Um, Research from Norway um, and and some other countries shows uh, that this hasn't really happened. So um, the benefits that were promised uh, by these quotas have not occurred.
0: So it has worked in the sense that there are now more women on boards, but it has not worked in the sense that it has actually changed the management structure or or perhaps culture of these companies.
3: That's right. That's right. Um, What also hasn't happened are uh, the uh, The fears that were brought up when these quotas were first discussed, Uh, the fears have not been fulfilled. So um, when the quotas first uh, came on the table, main companies were really against them. They were worried that they won't be able to find enough qualified women. That the few women who are really qualified to have prior CEO experience or have been on boards will be uh, overstretched. They will serve on multiple boards. In, in Norway, they were nicknamed the Golden Skirts. But that has also uh, not really happened. Uh, looking at data for Western Europe, we can see that on average, the share of women who serve on multiple boards is very similar to the share of men who serve on multiple boards. We also, um, from speaking with recruiters and uh, people who sit on corporate boards, including um, chairs, I found out that what's happened is that there has been this thinking outside of the box about who it, who, sh- who can be a director, and uh, the women who have come on boards are now um, often younger. They have a different backgrounds. Some of them may may be heads of nonprofits, so not necessarily a corporate background. And what has happened is that it actually it hasn't been a disaster. They have been um, pretty well equipped to do the job of directors. Some of them have been training um, at uh, board members' associations. Um, and it seems like they've really re- revitalized uh, the culture in boards, just have been a breath of fresh air in a way.
0: I think I'm right in saying that when these quotas were introduced, The Economist's editorial line was to oppose them. Are we now saying... They're, they're irrelevant, really. So there's no point even in removing them.
3: That's probably going too far. What, what we could say is that they're not hurting business. Some of them have been around for perhaps too short of a time. Uh, Norway, in Norway, they've been around for 10 years, In other countries for five years or less. So I wouldn't go as far as saying they should be removed. However, um, the biggest problem is that there is too much focused on them. And just tracking the share of women who are on corporate boards and claiming success when it goes up uh, is a bit of a distraction from what really should be done to improve working conditions for women and Which their is? chances for promotion. So that is really helping them um, being able to juggle family and work. And we, we have written about this in the past. What really needs, needs to be done uh, by governments if they care about women getting to the top is to ensure that they can juggle family and work because that now is the biggest impediment to women getting promoted and becoming CEOs um, and generally reaching senior the senior executive level. And the prescriptions are really well-known. Uh, what you need is for fathers to take greater responsibility for care for children. So well-paid paternity leave is essential. The other ingredients are high-quality daycare, and school hours and holidays that work uh, with the schedules of working parents. Now, companies, uh, for their part, can also do a lot. Um, They could ensure that flexible working becomes the norm, and not just for women, but also men, uh, many men now feel stigmatized for leaving early to pick up the kids from school, for example. And companies really shouldn't discount uh, the careers of women who step out of the workforce for a year or slightly longer to take care of children by thinking that they're less ambitious or dedicated to their careers.
0: Slava Cankova, thank you very much for joining us.
3: Thank you, Simon.
0: Next, on Wednesday, two rivals will meet to discuss what could be the biggest ever tech takeover. We're talking about two giant semiconductor companies you may never have heard of. Broadcom is in hostile takeover talks worth close to $150 billion in all for Qualcomm. Rachana Shambogues, our business correspondent, joins me now. Hi, hi Rachana. Hi, Simon. Who are these companies and why is this such a big deal?
1: Well, these companies might not be household names, Simon, but they are ubiquitous. Their trips feature in more or less every phone, um, computer or tablet. And that's why this is such a big deal.
0: So it sounds as if it might raise competition concerns if they're the... the To monopolists, as it were, duopolists in this sector?
1: That's absolutely right. Their union will create the third largest chip maker, and they'll have lots of power across a range of chips, um, which is why Broadcom's interested in acquiring Qualcomm in the first place. Um, And Qualcomm has not been a stranger to antitrust regulators. It's already paid out, on average, about a billion dollars a year over the past four years in fines to regulators. So, really, the big question is whether this deal will pass through um, regulators or not. that's actually why Qualcomm has asked for the meeting on Wednesday because it is not convinced that the deal will pass. Um, Broadcom is convinced that it has, it will have regulators and customers on side, um, and really, that's the big one hundred fifty billion dollar question.
0: Of the two, I guess Qualcomm is the better known; much more right. people will have heard of it. Broadcom's boss Hock Tan seems quite a character, though. But he is he a, a serious contender? He says this is a serious offer.
1: Um, well, it certainly appears to be the case. The The bid was made back in November. Since then, Broadcom has increased its offer uh, for Qualcomm. And Tan has a track record of, of large acquisitions. He engineered the largest tech acquisition a few years ago and is now moving on to the next one. So it certainly seems like a serious offer.
0: And why is Qualcomm resisting?
1: Qualcomm seems to be resisting... Uh, Well, we don't really know because they haven't been saying very much. But it appears that they have two concerns. The first concern is that the price isn't right. Um, They would like to potentially see a higher price. And the second concern, as, as I've sort of mentioned, is they don't think the deal will pass through regulators and the result would be lots of uncertainty and the talks will break down and that will affect their share price.
0: So what might come out of this meeting that they will agree to proceed or that the whole thing might be called off?
1: My impression is, yes, that's that's basically it. Either on Valentine's Day they'll decide to to stay together or, or to join forces, or they won't. And if they don't go ahead, then Broadcom might try and stage a sort of proxy takeover on the sixth of March. I think is the annual general meeting for Qualcomm, and um, they'll try and convince shareholders to vote in an entirely new board. So that's the sort of next step if it doesn't if the, they don't agree to merge on the fourteenth.
0: Richard Shampug, thank you very much, especially for introducing a Valentine's Day theme for the first <laughs> time to Money Talks. I believe.
1: Thanks very much, Simon. And um, I'm going to turn the tables on you because I hear a little birdie's told me that it's your last show for a while.
0: I am leaving the job of finance editor of The Economist, and with it goes the joy of hosting Money Talks. Well, so next week it will be the new finance editor, Helen Joyce, who will do it much better than I.
1: Well, we'll certainly miss you, and I'm sure the, the listeners will as well. What's your highlight been?
0: Apart from interviewing you, shouldn't <laughs> I, I? It's hard to think of one.
1: <laughs> well, thank you very much, Simon. <laughs>
0: <laughs> thank you. And uh, I hope they'll allow me back every now and then. <laughs> <Thanks so much. laughs> And finally, when you talk about customer service in Japan, I think of attendants in automatic lifts to press the buttons for me, of taxi drivers with white gloves, and courteous shop attendants who return your credit card with two hands and a bow. But recently, the number of jobs on offer in Japan has outstripped the number of job seekers for the first time ever. And Sarah Burke, the economist Tokyo Bureau Chief, has noticed this is affecting service. Hello, Sarah. Hi, Simon. So what what changes have you noticed?
2: I mean, what you're noticing more is Japanese people starting to grumble. They say that often queues are longer, that the sort of courtesy that they expect, uh, the bowing, the time to speak to you, they're noticing that that's disappearing in restaurants and in shops.
0: The one change that struck me when I was last in Tokyo, which was over a year ago now, I guess, was that... How many of the shop assistants, particularly in convenience stores, were actually Chinese, that they were immigrants? Is that part of the change?
2: I mean, that's always been the case in convenience stores. But yes, you are noticing more immigrants coming in. The government has allowed visas to more people to work and take these jobs in simple industries. And that is something, too, that bothers Japanese people, partly because they find the linguistic barrier. uh, People don't speak Japanese as well as they would like them to do. And partly because of the the cultural niceties that go along with the high level of service in Japan. They feel that are now starting to be missing.
0: And are shop assistants generally less courteous? I mean, besides grumbling in the queues. Is there a grumpiness behind the counter?
2: I mean, I haven't noticed that. Japan has impeccable service compared to most countries in the world still. But definitely uh, you hear people about saying that at lunchtime their tray was taken away before they'd finished eating. uh, And things that they say just wouldn't have happened a few years ago because there are a shortage of stuff and people are in a rush and don't have time for the same level of service anymore.
0: So you ascribe the problem basically to the, the familiar one of Japan's demography, just not enough people to do the jobs and not enough immigrants to fill them.
2: Indeed. I mean, Japan has now uh, more jobs than applicants. uh, And so it's very difficult for companies, especially in the service industry, to get the number of staff they need. And Japan doesn't really like immigration. And so there's a limit to how many people can come in to fill those jobs. So almost certainly what we're noticing at the moment is due to the labor shortage, which is obviously due to Japan's aging and declining population.
0: I suppose the other change that's happening all around the world is technology. I mean, is is that having an impact that technology is being introduced to replace people in, in service industries?
2: Yes, I mean, that is happening in Japan, and it's hard to tell which one came first, whether the labor shortage is driving that or whether uh, technology is being introduced in any case. But certainly when you talk to restaurants uh, and other customer-facing services, they say they're introducing uh, automated automated payment systems uh, in part because of the labor shortage. They hope that it can speed things up. Uh, Others are saying it's because of convenience and they think uh, customers would rather pay that way, that it might be quicker. Um, But a lot of Japanese you speak to would still prefer that human touch.
0: Sarah Burke, thank you very much for joining us from Tokyo. Thank you. Well, that's all for this episode of Money Talks. And that's all for me for a while. But to read more about everything discussed in the show, pick up the forthcoming issue of The Economist, or visit our website at economist.com. I'm Simon Long. In London, this is The Economist. only from rustolium